0: Welcome to episode 172 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend and joining me again, his fellow analyst Anshul Sag. And you know, I've been on the road. I was I was with Marvell earlier this week. It's why we're recording on Saturday. And you were with AMD, right?
1: Yes. I was with AMD and some other Uh, CES previews. I had to do a red eye from San Francisco to New York, which is like the worst.
0: Those are always fine. Yeah, I did one for the first time in about 10 years, just back in, I think it was October. And boy, yeah, I can't sleep on airplanes.
1: (laughs) I somehow managed from exhaustion to sleep two hours.
0: Yeah, we'll be expeditious with our viewers and listeners this week, but we've got a lot of great topics to talk about. And I'm going to open up with what I believe is a watershed event for open RAM and unless you are living under a rock this past week, AT&T and Ericsson announced a huge partnership. And basically, and I was actually had an opportunity to speak with Egali Baz that runs network operations for at and I've known Egal for many years. I was pre briefed several hours ahead of the announcement, but at a high level, AT&T is aligning with Ericsson to deploy OpenRAN in a big way. And this is not, obviously, this is a brownfield network, highly complicated, but the spend could reach over $14 billion over the five-year term with with Ericsson. And um, the plan is for AT&T eventually to draw in 70% of its wireless network traffic over open standard architecture. So this is huge. And I got a couple of insights here. uh, number one, uh, if anyone can pull this off in the U.S., in my mind, it's AT and T because they have a history of being focused on open source. Um, they about a year ago they transferred a lot of their IP and uh, a lot of the folks that were working on a lot of their open network uh, initiatives to Azure, so that they could focus on their core competency. But Ericsson represents an opportunity, John Spanky, I think I, I, read several articles and he was quoted as this was fairly opportunistic to align with one particular vendor. And so there's been a lot of question around what does this mean for Nokia? I, have read a lot of articles uh, about have Beatty and at the end of the day, Eric's Nokia is not necessarily out of the mix. And speaking with egal, he needed to choose one path to reduce complexity. I think Ericsson is also a great choice because Ericsson has a huge engineering center in Louisville, which is very close to AT&T's corporate headquarters in Dallas, downtown Dallas. And the integration with is going to be complex. And so having engineering resources closer to HQ, I think it's going to help. But in the long term, this doesn't necessarily rule out Nokia being a participant. AT&T is stating that This is a multi-vendor ecosystem approach. And so there are going to be a lot of different infrastructure providers that'll be involved in the mix. But from my perspective, this is really a watershed event for Open RAN. Certainly Vodafone in Europe has been very aggressively deploying Open RAN, but really AT&T is the first major US operator to really make this bold commitment. And my gosh, 14 billion in Splunk. Wanting to drive the majority of its network traffic through open platforms. This is huge, man. What do
1: you think? I have a lot of thoughts, but I'm going to be very concise with them because I've already thought about them. One, I think it's really interesting that Ericsson is the vendor because Ericsson was by far and away a laggard on Open RAN for a while.
0: And they were on the bench, and Eyal and I talked about that. So yeah, you're right. right. That's a great observation.
1: They, yeah. they like flipped the script. And then also, they, when you look at Ericsson and when you think about OpenRAN, you don't really think, OpenRAN, let's go Ericsson. I think it's interesting. They've clearly made improvements to their solutions. And I think to your point, AT&T is the most likely candidate for this because for the last five years, they've just been software-defined everything. That's why I thought they would be the first with standalone because it's so much about virtualizing the RAN. And yeah, I just think that this is a good move for AT&T, and I think down the road. Right now, they're one vendor, but I think down the road it gives them the opportunity to yep. have a multi-vendor strategy beyond Nokia, Ericsson, and bring in more companies in the fold, which I believe was the entire goal of OpenRAN to begin with, yep. um, and maybe opens more opportunities for uh, domestic vendors to compete and potentially lower costs.
0: Yeah, I asked the question, and it's funny. You and I were were back channeling when the knees broke, um, and I asked the question. I go, "Does a is, is any of this sort of rooted in your desires to aligned to the U.S. government's desire to domesticate the the, the supply chain for five G and beyond?" And I didn't really get a straight answer from Western Buzz, but the reality is, AT and T does a lot of uh, work with the federal government. I have a good friend that. Uh, then state and local government sales uh, with AT and T, and so that has to be a factor as well. But I think what what Mister. ebon stated was this is going to provide us. It's not necessarily a capex opex thing from their perspective. It's an agility thing, so that they can deploy you know new services faster and leverage. You know, and obviously over time there there will be capex and opex benefits tied to that. But this is what I'm hearing from executives, and I think what I read in another article from CEO John Stanky was around this, this is more about agility and diversifying uh, the ecosystem and the supply, and then obviously the supply chain factors into that as well. But anyway, it's exciting news. I think we'll continue to hear more about this, but let's go to your first topic. We're going to talk about another mobile network operator in the US T-Mobile. And I caught this news as well. They're deploying standalone 5G millimeter wave. And I think that's going to be pretty exciting. It's fixed wireless access services, but I'll let you
1: take it. I don't want to steal your thunder. Yeah, this was a test a millimeter wave using standalone, which, if you think about most millimeter wave deployments, have been millimeter wave on the downlink over 5G and then 4G on the uplink. This is a, I would say, an integration of millimeter waves into the already existing standalone infrastructure. Yeah. They were able to get uh, peak downloads of 4.3 gigabits per second using eight channels of millimeter wave spectrum, um, which is in the expected performance scenario. Uh, also they worked with Ericsson and Qualcomm to achieve this. So Ericsson was most likely the infrastructure vendor Qualcomm is probably the UE and yeah. they also reported a 420 megabit twink. So that's a pretty big one. And they were using. They weren't using any low band or mid band as the anchor, so it was just millimeter wave, and yeah, they 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 were able to do four mil four channels of millimeter wave on the uplink to get that four hundred frames per second uploads are getting more and more important as people become content creators and want to stream more content uh, from their devices. We'll see where this gets used, but you made a good point that fixed wireless is a an opportunity for them with this. That's I what? actually believe this will be. At the core of T-Mobile's strategy in dense environments, like let's say stadiums and and, and sport and other entertainment venues, I think this will be uh, the core of how they deliver uh, a good experience to users. Because truthfully, without millimeter wave, um, most of these venues are 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 useless. Yeah, I agree,
0: and I think you mentioned the stadium, the kind of the density type applications when a lot of users come together at once and. And so one of the challenges with millimeter wave is propagation and you have to densify, right? To, to extend um, the signal range. And in a, in a stadium or at Circuit of the Americas or any sort of venue like that, it's a little bit easier to, you know, to play small cells and, you know, macro cells within those environments to get the densification that you need. But what what I really like about this is that T-Mobile has been just moving up the staircase with its layer cake spectrum. When Neville, you and I spent a lot of time with Neville when he was leading technology for T-Mobile, the initial focus was on low band to ensure good coverage. Now they're, they've been moving into their mid band and, and moving that into standalone and now millimeter waves. I think that's a logical progression. It's probably the best progression for, for the operator, but yeah, good stuff, man. Let's go to my second topic, and I want to talk about Huawei. So we haven't talked about Huawei in a while. And they conducted their Huawei Connect Europe event. Before the pandemic, they conducted Connect in, was it, is it in Shanghai? Yeah, it was in Shanghai. It's been in Shanghai, but they're moving that signature event regionally, much other infrastructure companies do. So they had their event, it was in Paris, and I didn't actually, I was able to attend. It was the week before Thanksgiving and I was traveling, but I did too long virtually, and I did contribute an article to RCR Wireless's analyst, Van that posted this week. But at a high level going into that, my question was, is Huawei back, right? Just are my Texas Longhorns back? I think they are, but is Huawei back? And what was interesting, um, to my no surprise, the, the event theme centered around sustainability and the cloud and from a sustainability standpoint, um, Always been very focused on um, initiatives that are uh, designed to reduce power consumption, and so at the event, um, they had you know several you know customers and partners on stage that included Solar Power Europe and the Global Enabling Sustainability Initiative. And it's no secret that one of the pivots that Huawei has made has been around solar, and not necessarily manufacturing the panels, but the solar inverters, and so. They've quickly over the last year and a half to two years, they've developed a, a portfolio of uh, solutions, and uh, I talked about that in the article. So we'll include the link uh, when we post the podcast here. But I think that sort of marks a, a, a positive pivot in for their their business direction, given that they've had softness, obviously, in their cellular infrastructure business based on the entity listings and that sort of thing. But the other thing, it's more of a, I think, a me too fast or slow follower, however you want to characterize an approach, but they're focused on cloud service delivery. And to no surprise, AI is in the mix with that as well. So they're definitely trying to compete with the likes of HPE GreenLake and Dell Apex. But they've also, just like I think everyone else, they've announced new AI models. They have a model called Kangoo and Gauss DB. GALFDB is a distributed cloud database, but what Huawei points to is that a lot of these initiatives around their cloud services are enabling startups in Europe that want to do business in China and vice versa. China, startups that want to do business in Europe, it's helping facilitate that through through connectivity. I think at a high level, are they back? Certainly, they're they're remaining relevant. They're focusing on the right things that everyone else is focusing on. A lot of their success is self-reported. And so it's hard to audit this other than what they provide and prospectuses and their earnings announcements and that sort of thing. But I think at a macro level, when you look at the event and you look at the fact that they had partners and customers on stage, spousy, the success of what they're accomplishing, I would say they're remaining relevant. But what do you say? <laughs>
1: I think remaining relevant is, is a more accurate representation of, yeah. of the state of Huawei. Um... I don't really think they're back um, because there's a lot of countries where they're explicitly forbidden um, or being thrown out. um, I do think that they have a lot stronger of a presence in Africa and in um, the Middle East and Southeast Asia. Um, But I do think that they are going to be capped on growth and they do have a lot more competition. I also think a lot of the AI stuff they're talking about app is also going to be limited since they don't have access to things like NVIDIA GPUs. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be interesting. I think their bread and butter of infrastructure will will have a cap, which is why I think they're going into other industries like cars. So I think Huawei is back in a sense that they are actively participating and, and trying to engage more, but I do think that there will never be a Huawei in the future that uh, matches the Huawei that was pre-entity listing.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But financials are rebounding. Again, a lot of this is self-reported. And, and it's, hey, focusing on supporting greener energy technologies like solar is a good thing. So are there security concerns around solar inverters? Who knows? But but anyway, let's go to your second topic. And you want to talk about Apple. And what is this, deeper Mini drama?
1: Yes. So Beeper Mini was an app that launched last week, essentially, or this week, if you can call it that. But basically, yesterday, the app stopped working. What is Beeper Mini? Beeper Mini was an app that launched for Android that allowed you to message your iPhone user friends as a blue bubble, So that way, you could have all your conversations with your iPhone friends as if you were an iPhone user. And you wouldn't break the group chats and you wouldn't be seen as a pariah. Three days later, it stopped working. (laughs) And there are no clear statements from the company why it wasn't working, but most people believe that what happened is that Beeper Mini was able to reverse engineer iMessage and figure out a way to make it work for Android users. And three days later, it stopped working. And now Beeper Mini says it's back today which we'll see how long that lasts. But they they say that based on the reports I've seen that the CEO believes that the Apple found a way to cut them off. I'm sure that any good app that's trying to solve a problem like this most likely knew this was going to happen and already had the backup plan. Yeah. Um, it's just a question of how many backup plans do they have. And also this kind of demonstrates... How Apple is not really a, I don't know how to put this, a good steward of the industry. And they can probably claim that this is a security breach of some sort. But the reality is that Android users don't really want to use iMessage or have a separate app to iMessage iMessage iPhone users. And that the EU was justified in pushing Apple to support RCS which they say they will now. And maybe because they said that they'll support RCS, they think they can get away with doing this. But I'm sure European regulators are watching this very closely and maybe even wanting to go harder on the hammer to when they drop it on Apple. That's the crux of it. Uh, deeper Mini is back, but we don't know for how long.
0: Yeah, so it makes me wonder what's Apple's motivation. Like you said, they could say that, oh, this potentially creates a security risk, but... Is it a monetiz- is it a monetization thing? Like Apple, it's, a, it's an over-the-top deal. I'm assuming you have to pay for it, right? Or is it free? No,
1: it's free. I messed oh, it up. Well, Beeper, you have to pay for Beeper Mini. But yeah. that's because they have to run all the infrastructure to make it work. Right. Um, because the thing is, the app launched on Tuesday, and it was down on Friday. So they really didn't give it much time. But yeah, like Apple, Apple uses iMessage as a, like a stickiness factor for iOS users. They don't really make any money on it, but it, if it keeps people on iPhone and allows people to socially shame others for not being on iPhone, Um, that's worth more than its weight in gold.
0: Yeah, that for sure. Interesting. Apple, drama. <laughs> Let's, let's go to my third and final topic. And I want to talk about Dish and Echostar. So this week, they officially received approval for the combination of the companies. But it begs the question, like, will it make a difference? There are a lot of hurdles in front of Dish and successful. And one of them is just not having the, the dollars to, to continue building out their, their highly disaggregated, open, virtualized cloud-native network, and they announced the merger agreement on August. eighth. yeah, it's, it takes a few months for the regulators to view all of this, but one of the biggest hurdles is going to be, I think they've got a note that's $2 billion. It's huge. That's going to mature, I think, or December of 2025. So it's a couple of years out, but so the clock is ticking. The runway is going to shorten here pretty quickly. What do you think? We've talked about this combination, this tie-up in the past on other podcasts, but what do you think? Are they going to be able to, to make a, a run at it?
1: I think really what this is, this is Charlie Ergen buying himself more time. Right.
0: That, that's um, my impression as well.
1: Because without this merger approval, Dish is dead. For sure. That's effectively how I see it. This buys him more time to figure out what he's doing and find someone to run the company that will lead them to success. But I'm... My my optimism for Avenger wanes by the day, Yeah, and I wish they are successful and hope that they are successful, but my confidence in their success uh, just keeps getting worse every day.
0: Yeah. It's not like it's looking pretty bleak and management shuffles continue. And yeah, it'd be great to have a fourth operator be competitive in, in the market, but from my perspective, they clearly haven't articulated a plan that provides differentiated value in the market. It just seems to be all about access and anchoring its initial plans on its prepaid business. So
1: they've been losing subscribers like crazy there. So I also think ATT's move to OpenRAN removes some of that novel OpenRAN thing that they were pushing when they launched. Yeah. For sure, yeah, and it's—I
0: tell you what, man—the lift to do this in an established brownfield network is tremendously more complex than it is with a a net new greenfield deployment. But anyway, let's go to your third and final topic. You want to talk about Telefonica and Nokia, and they are partnering to open a five G holographic lab in Spain. And hey, surprise, standalone is a part of the mix.
1: Yes, so this is a a lab that's being created to, it's a lab at the Valencia Polytechnic University in Spain. And they're claiming this is the first lab in Spain for the development and testing holography poly- uh, as a use case based on 5G communications. They're going to be using 26 gigahertz as their band for communication. They're going to be doing both standalone and non-standalone. Uh, Definitely millimeter it, wave, right? Definitely millimeter yes, wave. It is yeah. millimeter wave. It will be... I guarantee you will be mostly focused on standalone and Telefonica will be the one who will help deliver network operations which includes working with 5g cloud and edge compute to to send and receive these holograms and yeah it's a really good development because holograms are going to be a way that we see things in AR and this is This lab is part of the Advancing 5G Immersive Project, which was financed by the Spanish Ministry of Economic Affairs and Digital Transformation with Mm -hmm. next-gen EU funds from the European Commission. So it's like European Commission, Spain, and then the lab. And I'm sure the lab will throw some money at some developers too. But yeah, Nokia is obviously providing the 5G equipment and the university is supplying the research team. So they're going to do a lot of research in, in holography and using 5G no way that's their anchor.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love the whole academia partnership approach, bringing, you know, industry into this as well with Nokia and with Telefonica, and I think there could be some really um, exciting things that result from that, but uh, hey, my friend, it's been another great podcast. I'm hitting the road for my last business trip next week. I'm headed to Dublin and I'm going to spend some time with Druid. They do uh, Software software mobile core, 4G and 5G. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to spend some time with them on Friday the 15th at their demo day, and actually we'll be doing a video with, with, with a communication service provider that they are working with, as well as NAPATEC and NAPATEC does UPF offload. Um, I wrote a Forbes article back in August about it. So I'm actually following up to spend time. So we may not get our podcast recorded next week. It may have to be right before the Christmas holiday, but what, what do you have left? Do you have any more business travel before you, got, you hang it up for the year? Done. Oh, good for you, man. I'm a little jealous. Dublin, not a bad place to go for a business make it to your last business trip. Maybe
1: you'll get some Christmas oh. markets.
0: Yeah, good for you, man. Hey, why don't you take us home?
1: Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topic interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights on a specific 5 G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Whale Contact, and I'm at Ocho Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week or the week after. And don't forget to rate and subscribe.